from Rixie. This is Frameform. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Wednesday here in your ears. Hello. Welcome back, everybody. So great to, well, I guess I I don't see all of you listening, but I'm glad to, um, I'm glad that you decided to listen to us today and you decided to press that beautiful logo and start the waveforms a roll in with us. So this week, our theme for the episode is dance for everybody. Now, when you see a dance performance, you might have certain expectations going in regarding who you might see on stage. And over centuries, really, the construction of a dancing body has been very particular. It really has been defined by feats of athleticism, feats of, of, of reaching limits, and feats of, and really exploring all the possibilities of what the body can do. Now, we have a few films that we're going to talk about that really explore uh, physically integrated dance. Now, physically integrated performances really show the possibility and the potential of the human body in ways that you might not expect from traditional dance performances and really highlight the unique physicality of performers and really redefine what the capabilities and the limits of the body are. And we can further explore those possibilities and expand our vocabulary when we use other technology and, of course, cinema. So Frameform is, of course, the perfect place to talk about this. But, of course, first, before we dive into our prescribed films for the day, we always want to do a quick little check-in and see what each other are watching. Yeah, something I've been watching actually quite a bit is the Netflix special, Bo Burnham's Inside. And this... Well, first of all, it's, I think that this is a fantastic piece of pandemic filmmaking to the point that I really think this should be the only thing from the pandemic (laughs) that should be screened (laughs) from now on. Using both humor and a very dark and depressing second half really captures what that life was like and sort of the, really is a great insight into someone who really found their audience and made their career performing online and now having to reckon with essentially a monster that he helped create. Yeah, exactly. I haven't seen the whole thing. I've seen the beginning and I've of course seen on YouTube many times white woman's Instagram. I have (laughs) shared this amongst my family members as a source of great shared joy. And of course, as a, as this iconic time capsule, which I think is so great about this as well. I definitely need to finish watching the whole thing. But something I really respect about Bo Burnham is just that he has always been this strange, multi-talented, like, prodigy child that I remember when he was just this musical theater kid on YouTube. And it's interesting to see how that evolves over time. And someone who created these videos where he's singing a quartet or an entire chorus alone is now in a situation where he is confined to his home and creating this entire feature film on his own. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but it's been like the one thing that a lot of my friends have been telling me to watch. I'll get to it. But one thing I do love that uh, I watch the H3 podcast a lot 
And uh, one thing that Ethan said after watching it was like, I want to call him and ask him if he's okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. And because he's been on the show before, they like did a whole episode with him. So when you hear that from someone, it's just like, oh, okay. You know, like this, you get a frame space of what the what the film is about so uh, I'll get there I I guess I just need to be in that kind of headspace to watch it but um it will be soon (laughs) (laughs) I know a contributing factor to me not watching the whole thing yet is I recently saw him in Promising Young Woman oh Mm. and he's like in the entire movie he's like a main character and I was really invested watching that movie and I'm not going to get into the whole thing right now. It's pretty heavy. I do recommend it if if you see the trailer and it piques your interest and you're like, I think I might be interested in that movie. I think you p- might like it. I, I personally thought it was really strong. But anyways, he was in that and that movie left such an impact on me that I, I feel like I wasn't like fully ready to see him right. for that long on screen yet. Yeah. I was like, I need a break. I need to like forget who he is. But the really long hair and scraggly beard kind of helps, I guess. Yeah. In, yeah. in inside. The pandemic chic look yeah. kind of helps yep. separate from the other character I saw. Watch out for nice guys. That's, that's all I'll say about exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's pivot and go into our main topic of today looking at three very strong very different but memorable films so starting off today we're looking at revel in your body by kate fisher and alice shepherd now uh kate fisher she is a director with Safety Third Productions. They're based in LA. That you may have actually seen their work at other festivals featuring ceilings as well as vortices. Very, uh, very iconic work. If you've seen Sleeper Slow Mo, you've probably seen Kate Fisher's work. Exactly. Or like very colorful, I would say so too. Maybe that's just because of vortices. And that was also super clean. The year when, like, lots of, like, desert movies were coming out, I would say. like, <laughs> But she did, the interesting thing is she did Colorful in Desert. And I screened this in both D.C. and Vancouver. And people loved it and remembered it. And, like, out of the whole program of films. They're like, what was that one? Like, the soundtrack was so unique. And it there were a lot of desert films. But she also did a different, like, costume silhouette. Yeah. One of our programmers, Danielle Jill, she actually said that it reminded her of Dumbo. When he starts like hallucinating and like seeing the elephants. She's like, it just reminds me of that scene. Yeah, like windsurfers. Or not no windsurfers, like what like, oh, uh, body... like the squirrel, like the squirrel suits. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, those those videos. Such a specific reference. So good. Well, with Rebel in Your Body, which I think is also a very like hypnotic kind of film to watch I mean all of these films that we're discussing are very hypnotic in their own way collaborating with Alice Shepard and Laurel Lawson and Revel in Your Body I mean this film definitely pushes the boundaries of what you can do in wheelchairs but not just wheelchairs I just think like in general with this film I mean with 
the slow motion camera, it's very like easy to just get lost in it and lost in a way of just like you're hypnotized, you're really integrated into what they're doing as movers, as well as just the location or feeling lifted in the sky in general. And this definitely demonstrates that feeling of lightness, I think. Yeah, lightness and just the incredible physicality of both Alice and Laurel in this. And I think this is a great example of how like a non-traditional body and the physicality of a non-traditional body can really be utilized and really be pushed to provide movement that is that is new, that is innovative, that really shows the full capability of the human body. Really one of the original sparks for this film was uh, Kate Fisher seeing, I believe she was seeing it on Instagram, was uh, watching slow-mo trampoline videos of both Alice and Laurel jumping on a trampoline. Apparently, this happened after Alice and Laurel were told by an editorial photographer that they couldn't use a trampoline in their shoot, even though other dancers were allowed to use them. And so Kate decided, hey, I'll make a video with this trampoline and have Alice and Laurel jump on it. Like, I never thought of trampoline in this, watching this narrative or this video at all, because I I don't know why. I never even thought of a trampoline. I'm like, how are they doing this? Because one thing, I mean, we're talking about, like, bodies that are a little bit, like, maybe limited in their own way, but this film demonstrates like freedom and no limitations whatsoever because of how Kate is placing them on the screen like you just see like continuous and infinite like space around them and and I think that's what's so strong about it is it's so beyond what they can do like they can do anything that's what it looks like Well, it's so beautifully choreographed for the space, for the dancers, and for the camera. And then on top of that, you have, you know, wonderful camera movements and angles that are emphasizing, along with the slow motion, this feeling of weightlessness, like you both said. And, you know, I just think that it's so beautiful to watch. And I love that, similar to when we've talked about other topics of what what I would say are like niche dance communities or minorities within the dance community that don't get equal representation or not like the mainstream representation of dance. It's so great to see. I mean, the film's called Revel in Your Body. I love that it's like a positive message and a beautiful feeling um, that's conveyed through this film. Yeah. And Alice Shepard herself is such a force in the dance world as well. And Basically, her writing and her perspective are so invaluable and are must-reads to anyone in the arts. And a huge part of this film, and really tying back to the spark for it, is really how a performer has agency in the way that they're that they're being represented or the way that they're presenting work. Alice herself has said that she I mean, she's directed a few films herself, and she's always very specific about where the camera is so that the camera isn't at at a height that's framing the performer in a very reductive way. And that, that the performers or the work that she does goes beyond this narrow categorization of just, of what a dance audience would project on work 
made by a disabled artist. And she also has this wonderful uh, quote about, you know, this is when people see my work, they're assuming that I'm creating work for an able-bodied audience in order to educate them. And she talks about this struggle to push past that. And it, it really kind of pains me in a way to think that this st- is still a novelty nowadays. Like it's, for some reason, like if you see a disabled performer in performance, there's already these sorts of projections of a very, like a very narrow projection about what that work serves and what that work is is created for. And there's there are decades of work. There's decades of traditions of physically integrated dance and physically integrated dance from a variety of communities. The deaf community, there's a, I mean, I just want to shout out Antoine Hunter and Zaina Simon at Urban Jazz. They have a fantastic deaf dance festival every year. And it really is a community space for the deaf community. And that's so awesome. Yeah. And also, as we will hear in our upcoming uh, conversation, a big interest of Alice's is the integration of ADA accessibility into the creation of work. So the integration of audio descriptions into the work that's being created itself, not just something placed on top at the end, or the integration of like physically accessible spaces or the reimagining of what a space could be if it were wholly accessible. Something that's, uh, again, a stat that's really uh, disheartening to hear is that there are very few people who are qualified to be audio describers or who, who are qualified to audio describe dance. Yeah, it's disheartening to hear that there's so, there are people who aren't, I mean, not only not qualified to, or don't have the qualifications to audio describe performances, and not to mention theaters having the capability to provide audio descriptions for performances. Well, I think some key takeaways from the articles that we re- we reviewed preparing for today and that, of course, are linked in the show notes for you to peruse as well. And I just got to acknowledge and say thank you to Alice for, you know, some people gain fame and notoriety and visibility and they're their mission kind of ends there. It's like, oh, I represent something. Therefore, people can, you know, children and other people can believe this is possible for them too. And then there are those that extend their efforts and their their activism to actually create positive change and make the world better for others in that situation going forward. Or just to facilitate understanding. And I just love how all these different articles and interviews with Alice like really focus on the need for communication and the fact that it's not just a checklist. It's not just, you know, to quote her, it's not just a checklist and it's not just whatever is the bare minimum that's legally required. It's really something that's an ongoing conversation and something that's really important to have. Well, as we speak of all of these things, Things and amazing initiatives that these people, these artists that they're doing and contributing to the community and beyond. Claire, you had the opportunity to talk to Mark Brew from his company, Mark Brew Company, as well as Access Dance Company in Oakland, California, where you are. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I've actually had the pleasure of um, filming several of Mark's performances over the years. And um, Access consistently provides a good show. And wherever Mark is choreographing, be that 
with Axis, or he actually recently choreographed a piece with San Francisco Ballet School as well. It really is incredible, visceral work. And I had, I was so pleased to be able to speak with him. So let's roll that interview and here we go. Mark Rue, thank you so much for being with us on Frameform today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Claire. So you have such a massive resume. It's almost hard to really know where to begin. But if you can briefly describe your background in dance and uh, your interests as a dance artist and a creator. Hmm. Briefly, I will do my best. Um, as you said, um, I've had a vast career. I began uh, my career in Australia, which is where I was born and raised, and um, I did all my formal training there. I trained classically in, in classical ballet um, and contemporary dance. So I went through the Victorian College of the Arts Secondary School, which is in Melbourne, and then I went on to the Australian Ballet School. And while I was there, I also danced with the Australian Ballet Company, and I took my first job in South Africa to dance with Pact Ballet, which was the national ballet company there in South Africa, which is wonderful. I always wanted to visit South Africa. I always wanted to travel the world. That was my dream, to dance around the world. Um, and I was just beginning my career, professional career, um, when one day, Saturday afternoon, um, three friends and myself decided to jump in a car and go go for a drive and, and go to the bush to go bushwalking, as you do in Africa. And unfortunately, a drunk driver drove down the wrong way, the motorway, and crashed into our car. And uh, my three friends uh, were killed, and I was left with a spinal cord injury and um, internal injury uh, as well. So I was paralyzed from the neck down at the age of 19, when I thought the rest of the world was, you know, at my fingertips. I thought I was invincible. I was doing what I always wanted to do, to dance, and, and started traveling the world. And my life changed in a matter of seconds. So as you can imagine, it wasn't how I expected my dance career to continue. Uh, but once I was uh, safe to travel and um, was recovering, I moved back to Australia, was transferred back to Australia to go through rehabilitation. And that's when I sort of looked at myself and, and sort of reassessed what did dance mean to me. And for me, dance was about expressing myself through, through my body. And I still had a body. Uh, it may not have moved as it did before. Uh, and I had to transfer, you know, moving, using a wheelchair and out of the chair. So that began my journey of really exploring with my new physicality how I can continue my career as a dancer, a dancer with a disability. And that has taken me to New York. Um, it's taken me to Melbourne in Australia. It took me to London um, when I worked with Ken Duco Dance Company. I danced with them for five years. And I'd always through my career choreographed and was, you know, encouraged and nurtured through um, opportunities um, from my mentors and from my teachers. So choreography was always a part of my artistic uh, voice and expression and I'd always done alongside my dancing. So from there, I decided to continue with my own work and began my own company with Mark Brew Company in 2008 um, in London. So I've been based in the UK since 2003. And then I started doing a lot of commissions for other companies, uh, both ballet companies, contemporary dance companies, as well as physically integrated dance companies and uh, inclusive dance companies of people with very diverse disabilities. Um, so it's been a really wonderful opportunity to sort of share 
my passion for dance with a real variety of, of, of different people who have different access points into dance. And of course, film has been a wonderful way and um, Dance for Screen um, has been a wonderful way to make our work accessible as well through the medium of, of film. And so I've been able to do a few projects um, with some wonderful filmmakers and um, editors and it's been a really wonderful opportunity too. So I then um, did a commission with Access Dance Company that's based in Oakland, California. So my first commission with them was in 2011. It was called Full of Words. And then I was recommissioned in 2014 to make Divide. And then the founding director, Judith Smith, decided to resign. And she'd asked me whether I'd be interested in taking over as artistic director. And I was very honoured. And I said yes. So in 2017, I started my new role as artistic director and choreographer with Axis Dance Company. So I've been living and working um, in Oakland in the Bay Area um, for, you know, coming up to five years now. And um, as a Bay Area resident myself um, and a videographer myself, I've had the pleasure of um, documenting quite a few of your pieces over the years. And the variety of work that you present is um, really, really vast. And you have worked with performers from a wide array of movement backgrounds. Can you actually describe the process of creating dance work and generating movement? And how do you land on the mm. movement vocabulary for the pieces that you do? Mm, yeah, wonderful question. It's been a real journey, almost like a full circle for me. When, you know, when I first began choreographing as a young, young boy in a little small village called Geraldry, I would get the girls around and, and be in front of them and teach them a little dance routine in our backyard. And then at school, you know, at our primary school, I'd be teaching everyone different dance routines. Uh, so it was very much coming from my body and my physicality. And when I acquired my disability, my body was different and I wasn't able to stand up and demonstrate as I did before. So it really made me really broaden my horizons of ways of communicating and sort of asking and being trying to be clear on what the images are in my head and how I can make them reality and almost like paint the picture, you know, with the dancers' bodies in front of me. So I would give different tasks, um, a lot of it by trial and error. Sometimes it did work, it did get what I wanted, sometimes it didn't, sometimes it went somewhere completely different that was even better than I imagined. Um, so it's been a, a wonderful journey of using improvisation, um, uh, tasks to generate material and really working with the dancers, and then also me directing. And now, as I said, the full circle is that now I also give material as well. Um, well, probably about 2005, I started, you know, teaching dancers movement from my body. So whether it was an arm phrase or it was some floor work of me on the floor. And I was wanting them not to try to be or give the aesthetic of, oh, I'm disabled or I'm working, you know, I'm moving, you know, from Mark's body, but actually just picking up on the, the movement uh, characteristic style um, and the way of weight that moves. Um, so really picking up on the, my aesthetic through my body um, and then how they then make that their own. So it would become like a stencil and then once they learnt the stencil or the drawing, the outline of what I would give them, I would then ask them to shade and colour it in uh, with the rest of their body and how they can move through space at uh, different levels. So I use a combination of, of different tools, but I definitely had to learn, you know, as a dancer I didn't often 
verbalize a lot or didn't always feel confident speaking. So being able to try to communicate my ideas by giving description, by giving imagery, by demonstrating, and then by using sound and music uh, has really helped sort of find multiple access points to sort of get my ideas across. So you've also appeared in several different dance films and several different works of screen dance, including um, two films in particular, one, A Portrait of Mark Brew, uh, which traveled the festival circuit a few years back, and uh, Walochen. So what's been your experience collaborating on film work um, and working on, on film? Yeah, each of them has been very different. I mean, one thing I love about my work and the work that I like to do is collaboration. So whether it is doing a work for the stage or work for the screen, it is a collaborative process. And I don't always want to be the one that's the lead or, you know, that there is someone being the lead, but, you know, we, we're doing it together. We're all trying to fulfill a particular ambition or vision um, and we work on it together and we bring this, you know, this part, this, this mix of, of different skills and expertise and we put it in a part and we stir it all together and we create our work. And so with, with the different um, screen dance films I've made, you know, working, you know, quiet lock arms that you mentioned, you know, that was that was filmed over two days. So it was a very quick, short um, filming process. And that was working with the wonderful, fabulous, um, always inspiring Katrina McPherson. Mm-hmm. And and I'd never worked with her before. So it was a new collaboration of us coming together. But she also comes from a dancing background and that helps. And so we had some themes of reflection and glass and um, and you know, embodiment, body and space. It was set in the highlands of Scotland at at the loch called White Loch Arms, and <laughs> and so we were very much responding to that to the location. And Katrina, being a, a dancer herself, it became a duet. So I was improvising and moving, you know, with these prompts, with these ideas that we had explored in the space. So using my chair, out of my chair, in the floor, with the water, even though I was freezing cold, I wasn't completely <laughs> in the water. But I did get my toes in and my fingers in. And um, and so we were moving in and around each other. So it was like a partnership and like a part of the dancing together in the space. And so two days worth of filming material. And then we we worked with the wonderful um, and and the genius that he, he is and was, Simon Files, mm-hmm. um, who edited it together. And with the editing process, you know, we relied strongly on Simon because we had so much material to sort of do the initial sort of rough cut. And then, you know, he would share that with us and then we would feed in. Um, but it was, you know, that power was, I suppose, you know, led by him. And then the music was sort of put together with that as well. And, you know, so that was a real, you know, and being on location um, was a real wonderful experience. And to capture, you know, a disabled body in space, you know, out, you know, in the highlands of Scotland, you know, connecting in it every day with nature was a wonderful, you know, experience. And I'm just really proud that 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 work, that screen dance film has been able to have such a long life, you know. And even to this day, I've had a recent inquiry about it being presented at the National Gallery of Australia. One thing I loved about Huat Lacan's, uh, which is really important to me and the team, was to make it accessible. So we also did a, an audio-described version um, as, a, you know, for that work. So we're going to be presenting that, you know, sort of in the um, exhibition and then online will be the uh, audio-described version. So it's great to be able to always do that. And 
And then working, you know, another example, working on a portrait of Mark Brew, that was really unexpected, to be honest, and it was fun. It was different again. I was choreographing a piece on Scottish ballet at the time and two of the dancers in Scottish ballet who were part of the research and and the development of my new work just approached me and said, look, we really enjoy watching you you in rehearsal and the way you lead rehearsal and we'd love to just capture your personality and who you are as a creator and as an artist. And so they, and they worked very differently. Um, Louis Lendini, Lendini, who did all the, the camera work, um, and Jamil Lawrence, who who did sort of direction and choreography, um, they worked together as a wonderful team, and and with me, and they storyboarded it. So a very you know with they storyboard how it was all going to go. I was sort of given some ideas of choreography, so it was more structured, more set. They planned out the angles and and what they wanted to capture, and they actually used one of my wheelchairs to to help get that gliding across. So one of them was sitting in my chair as I was wheeling along and to get that, which normally you'd have like a track system to do that, but right. we um, we made up our own using one of my chairs. So that was <laughs> fun to be able to do that too and explore. I think for me, I don't get too over heavily involved in the editing because as a choreographer and also as someone who's in, like both those works were solo works, mm-hmm. um, I get so attached to the material that having someone with fresh eyes I think I'd find it very hard to to decide what to cut out and what to keep. So I think having someone, you know, who who isn't me to do that initially and then me to share my feedback. Yeah, so each of them has been a different collaboration, a different way, which I've really enjoyed. So there hasn't been one particular way of working in making screen dance for me. So um, it's, it sounded like you had a, a quite a bit of input or quite a bit of feedback with regards to the way that the films themselves have been shaped. But oftentimes, I mean, with some exceptions, I mean, Alice Shepard is probably one of the most notable ones. Um, performers with uh, disability rarely do find themselves behind the camera. And as such, many dance films do run the risk of projecting um, sort of an ableist gaze uh, that can you know, frame the movement or frame the performer in a reductive manner. Uh, what dialogues have you conducted with directors and cinematographers, either in dance film or even in dance documentation, regarding the way that your movement is framed? Really, really great point. And and it is true. And I think it's something I'm aware of. And I think it's through, through having conversations with people and sort of educating people. Because I think, you know, film is, you know, screen has been made a certain way. And now there are different voices and um, different you know, different perspectives and stories to be told that I think they need to be brought into the conversation. So, um, you know, when I first started working, um, actually when I first one of my, one of my first solo shows um, could take a seat with me and we did a whole lot of capturing and that was me working with somebody, but I, I wanted the perspective of me. And so I was filming a lot with, you know, the view from being on my chair and, and on my level perspective, because often I would see people at, you know, hip height and crutch height, you know, and things like that. So that was a part of a show that I made. So I definitely wanted to get that perspective, you know, viewed in and there. I, I do, I have found it hard when I've wanted to be behind the camera to, you know, do the camera work and shoot because often where we are, you know, unless it's sort of um, a really accessible venue or a space that we're in, it is hard to move with a camera as a wheelchair user myself to be able to hold a camera and move with a camera. 
um, it, it does present some some challenges. But I think it's just about having conversation with people, making sure that you have the support and the team that you need to be able to, to do that. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just about being open and about what your access needs are and, and sharing that with people. Sometimes um, we do see works of screen dance that, um, I mean, similar in a way that mirrors some films, um, like Oscar bait films mostly, but in the major studio system that feature either uh, non-disabled performers performing disability or disabled performers who are really tokenized and have significantly reduced roles. One, I mean, one excuse I've seen to this end is that um, there was a recently publicized um, moment where a neurodivergent performer was uh, let go from a film under the under the guise that uh, the barriers of the film set precluded the performance or the precluded an effective performance. Um, and you're someone who's performed in, um, I mean, you've performed in the Highlands of Scotland, you've performed in some uh, very... Um, very site-heavy environments, um, but still, like, what barriers of access have you seen on either film sets or traditional dance spaces that preclude physically integrated involvement and collaboration? Mm. I mean, I will say for me to be involved in other people's projects, uh, when people haven't been aware of access needs and what that access need, what they could mean and what that does mean for me individually or other people with disabilities, that's when I really see, you know, clear... Um, you know, as you know, discrimination, but I think it's more about just not being educated. Like you want to make a film that includes people with disabilities, then you need to educate yourself uh, and ask the questions and put in place so those barriers are removed. An example of that is filming in a location or a space that is accessible for that person despite what their disability may be, you know, um, and making sure that they have the access support. So if I'm working someone who, who may be a deaf performer, um, making sure that we have our ASL interpreters or someone who's blind, that there's audio description, that there's, you know, a, a support system there for those, or or someone who's who may be working with me, is a, you know, who supports me as a wheelchair user, making sure I always have somebody that acts as my access worker um, and there to make sure that all locations I go to, that there is alternatives. So if there's stairs, there's ramps, or there's another way of getting there. You know, I think there has there is there is being a shift, and it is extremely frustrating as a disabled person when you see in even, you know, um, blockbuster Hollywood films when you know the roles that are playing, you know, acting as disabled people are played by non-disabled people. That's extremely frustrating. I think you know people have advocated to have that change and keep that changing for years. I think things are slowly changing, but more needs to be done. And it's not just about saying yes, we want to include people with disabilities but it's showing and, and providing that access so then people feel um, on equal ground as anybody else that's having access to that to that film or to that, sh- to that shoot. That question of access or that uh, issue of access not only extends to the, the creation of the film itself, but also the way the films are received. Now, today, most screening venues are required to be ADA accessible, and they also feature pathways for even greater accessibility, including... Things like, like you mentioned, audio descriptions for films and in some cases, sensory friendly screenings for those who are neurodivergent. Um, There are still some gaping blind spots in that. Um, There was actually an incident at a major dance film festival last year when a program that was actually devoted to physical inclusivity um, 
was set to be held in a theater only accessible by stairs. But what's been your experience with dance film screenings and what existing barriers of accessibility are still present in not only viewing the films, but also with other events that may may go along with a festival environment like networking events or panels or installations? Claire, as you mentioned, I've been around for, (laughs) seems like a long time now. Um, And I've experienced all of those things, you know, and and I just want to go back for one second and say, when it comes to someone's access needs, that that should not be put on the disabled person to ensure that whoever they're working for or whoever the film crew is, that, that it's a disabled person who's ensuring that. It needs to be responsible of the producers, whoever's organizing it, whoever's hiring, that that, that those access needs are, are asked and that they're heard and they're applied. Because um, so often, even for me personally, like it, it gets put back onto me to ensure that other people feel comfortable about being around me and that I am making sure that access needs are not just met for me, but also other disabled people. So I think people need to do do the work, as I mentioned, you know, um, and educate themselves um, and ask the questions about what those needs are so they can put them in place. And it's not the responsibility of the disabled person to, to ensure that. Um, but accessing events, um, you know, screenings, you know, I've, I've definitely turned up to events where, yeah, there's been stairs or I've had to go the back route route, you know, up the alley around the back and everyone else gets to enter through the front and I've got to go at the back. And as a wheelchair user, I often, you know, I prefer to stay in my chair. Um, and one thing that extremely frustrates me is um, there really isn't any choice when you go to a cinema of where you can sit or where you can position yourself. It's either in the middle of the back or at the front. You know, but what happens if I wanted to sit over on the side? Or what happens if I wanted to sit halfway down? You know, so to be able to have choice and to, you know, that, that's taken away from me. Um, as a wheelchair user, I'm told that I have to go sit in a particular area, um, which may be away from other people and other colleagues. So we're already segregating people. You know, people who need this access need have to position themselves here. But wouldn't it be great if it was a space that was fully accessible to everyone and we could all make the choices of where we wanted to be, sit, experience, and who we wanted to connect with? And often when I've gone to networking events, you know, even if it may be accessible, then it's on this really heavy carpet and... You know, they're, they're giving drinks out and, uh, you know, I can't move and, you know, wheel and, and hold a drink at the same time. So I get, you know, sometimes I get stuck in a spot and it's hard then to network and then no one will come up to me, you know. So um, I think we need to be aware of all of those elements. And in regards to, you know, films and, and when films are produced, I, I'd say similar to what I do in live performance, you need to use these access tools, audio descriptions, captioning, um, you know, ASL interpretation. These are wonderful, you know, communication, you know, um, access, but also wonderful creative tools that can be a part of the process. So when you're making and producing a film or making a dance, we need to be thinking about all of those elements at the beginning so they feed into the process and not at the end when we've made the product or finished the film. Now, now we need to add in the audio description. Now we need to have, you know, conversations with consultants. Bring in the consultants at the beginning. Bring in the experts. Bring in the disabled people so they can, you know, give you that knowledge and experience and, and help guide you to make sure that your work is being, you know, fully inclusive. And then when it's screened, it's, it's, it's available to everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for offering your insights, Mark. And actually, I'm curious, what do you have uh, coming up? I just finished a, a new um, screen dance, a short screen dance film. I um, 
was collaborating as part of the British Council, uh, was asked to be involved in a collaboration that we called Dance Dialogues between myself here, the artist here in Scotland, and with an artist uh, um, named Mariska in, uh, in Indonesia, in Jakarta. And so we decided to make two, two films. And uh, the idea was we were looking at our concept of starting point being around, once again, the environment we're in and the idea of being closed in through, um, through lockdown and then being open and what does that mean? So I chose a particular starting point and then shared that with Mariska, and then Mariska had a starting point, and then shared that with me, and then we each responded to that, and then they were just edited into a film. So it was wonderful to be able to do a new film. So watch out for that new film. Um, uh, mine was called Renewable. Um, so we're just we're just going to be putting out the sort of trailer, and and then that will be coming available. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. What a great conversation between the two of you. I mean, it, I mean, I always love listening to these, you know, little conversations that we have integrated into the show. It's just kind of like a nice break to like really listen and learn about other people's stories. It's always a treat every time. And I'm so grateful that I don't think anyone's ever said, no, I don't want to be on the show. Yeah. Like, it seems like everyone has been really excited and also done a really amazing job. And I think especially this season with Outside Eye and with our numerous interviews and even guest hosts, shout out to Andrew Chapman, I think that it's been really exciting just adding that dynamic to the conversation. As much as I love you both, and I think the three of us (laughs) have a great rhythm, it's awesome to just introduce and feature different voices as well. And I also just really want to thank Mark for being on the show, of course, and really being vulnerable. Also, just sharing so much about his story and his experience. Um, It's so true that we, that's an important part about this show is actually spreading education and spreading wisdom and spreading like real life experience and real life stories. And sometimes those can be really personal and really heavy and we just appreciate anyone that comes on the show and makes themselves vulnerable and you know helps us all grow in through the process absolutely absolutely i so appreciated mark's perspective and particularly the perspective on the remaining accessibility issues from his perspective hearing about how different events are run you can tell that there's still an ableist vent to a lot of these situations and I wanted to touch on, um, I mean, an experience I had recently where I worked with a deaf performer and realized I'm, oh, wait, I do, I mean, I know that I caption text, but what do I do with music? And I was kind of embarrassed myself that I hadn't thought about that up until that moment. And really, it's it behooves anyone. And also, as curators, it really benefits all creators to have someone who is skilled in audio description and skilled in audio transcription in the process. Because if there's anything that helps clarify your intention for a film, it's having it be described. And let me tell you, so many more films, so many more dance films could only benefit from that. I agree. Well, and just 
this is a good time to mention something I forgot to mention earlier is Alice Shepard's actually involved in developing Ottomans, which I think that's how you say it because it's like audience, but audio. Um, so Ottomans, which we've got a link to it in the show notes as well. So you can learn more about that. But it's just super cool. So just on that page, here's like a quick little tidbit to get you enticed to actually click on the full thing. Led by people who are blind, visually impaired, and sighted, the Kinetic Light Collective is creating audio content for Descent by sonifying the dancers' bodies and by rendering the dance itself in sound. So if you want to learn how they're doing that, click on the link in the show notes. Well, moving forward to our next film um, today, Forest Floor, directed and choreographed by Robbie Singe in collaboration with Julie Cleaves, a film in Scotland and I have to say it's funny how being on this show I've been maybe a little bit of a Grinch or like a gatekeeper in a way of like how Screen Ants is and then as I've we you know we're discussing films I like I've been like changing and if I saw this years ago, I don't think I would have loved it as much as I do today. I think this is such a special work just because of there's this installation experimental performance art qual- quality to it. Uh, and there's so much suspense in the making by the time we get to a moment of where there's like, I would say, like actual choreography of how most people see dance it's so satisfying and i love the rhythm of this film jen claire what are your thoughts on forest floor i think everything that this film does well are things that would have been done well in any sort of film just the things that this film does well are just universally amazing I think a huge part of it is just the acting and the presence, like the authenticity with the performers is just beautiful. They seem to have a real like intimacy and be fully dynamic individuals. I just love that. It's so satisfying to watch, especially when audiences are just so overwhelmed with stuff all the time and where real people don't even feel real. And then just, you know, in general, aesthetically, I love like the colors and then this isn't aesthetics, but like the close-ups, the quick cuts, the beginning. I just think it does a lot of things super well and like is an accessible, enjoyable short film. And then the last thing I want to say about that film is just about the movement, which I think is such a beautiful blend of it's utilitarian and like it's just practical for what the bodies call for in that space. But it's also so beautiful and you know, as I said, like intimate and feels very natural. So I agree 100%. This film's absolutely a treasure and I love it so much. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it, Jen, just a utilitarian and really just like a task-based film in general. And a task-based film that solves problems that, again, many people wouldn't even have, would have not even sparked for them. And I think so many of us take for granted the ability to, oh, let's go, you know, let's go to the Cairngorms and like just have a, have a nice day out. And really it's that, it's the labor of making sure that people can go to these spaces that really, I mean, not only, I mean, 
provides the, the utilitarian access, but also really highlights the relationship between the two performers and really, you know, shows the, um, and really shows that connection. Again, Julie and Robbie, I've, always loved their description. They met at an unsuccessful audition and they've been dancing together for over a decade now. And you can really feel that, that sense of intimacy that they've developed and that real sense of knowing each other's movement and each other's tendencies as well. Subtleties and care. I don't even drink beer and I'm like, I want to hang out and drink beer with these two. I mean, we were saying things like utilitarian and genuine. I mean, I always think of like just a homegrown aesthetic to it just because we see them like making the boards, putting them together, taking them down. It's something that you don't see very often in dance film works where you're actually kind of building an environment with actual tools rather than just using the environment around you or just performing it like it's props exactly like Like, it actually feels real and like filmy in that sense you see that a lot maybe on stages because that's what you know you're in a black box theater you have to create your environment where in this sense because of you know the different physical needs using these boards in the natural environment I mean that's what creates the wonder and the suspense of how we're going to move and I think that's just like a beautiful way of just being creative in general I mean that's when you look at Robbie's website you know it says that he was he studied science before he became a dancer which I think is a really great element to this whole narrative here because you are working with problem solving and working together and that's what is exactly going on and I want to see more of that in dance film where we're actually going the extra mile and putting maybe more use of getting architects involved you know like how do we absolutely put that extra element and not just rely on the forest or the city or what we have available you know yeah and another little tidbit about not necessarily this film specifically but a related work of theirs is that apparently the devices used to actually transfer julie onto the ground are, tend to be expensive and clinical and not mobile. And so a lot of the work concerns a literal economy of movement where you're not only finding the most economical way of, of making that transfer, of, of shifting that weight, but also trying to find the cheapest as well. So hence using these, you know, going to the timber yard, getting these timbers and coming up with solutions to enable enable that access and enable that movement as well and using it in so many different ways not just as like a way of like transportation it's uh i mean they're building their own forest floor as well i think inherently films that do feature you know whether it's the entire cast and crew or if it's just some of the dancers in the film or the collaborators you know films that feature dancers with different abilities inherently have this creative flair to them and just this 
this added layer of creativity and I think always come across as unique, you know? And I think one film that does this so beautifully is Stop Gap and Stop Motion, which is a collaboration between Stephen Featherstone and Stop Gap Performance Company. Um, again, I screen this film at both my festivals as like many films on this podcast. If I like <laughs> discover them before the podcast and I love them, I've probably found a way to get it on a theater screen. But anyways, this film, I think so beautifully with the animation, like not, you know, it's an incredible animated film as well. By having the dancers break the boundaries of the pages, you're literally seeing this, you know, poetic representation of breaking the boundaries of dance and movement and of these confines that you might place on the dancers before you really see how they move and how incredible they are, what they do. Yeah. And one of my favorite moments and really one that shows really how uh, kinetics can be amplified through this movement is that one moment where the dancer in the wheelchair really wheels herself out of the frame. And there really is this sense of freeing feeling that, you know, someone who maybe does not use a wheelchair can't really provide that same propulsion. That same propulsion is not possible. And I mean, I know that's something that Alice explores in her work, but there's that sense of freedom and propulsion that can be, that I mean, I think can be utilized much more in many different ways too. Well, I think a lot of time when we see a strong dance or a strong dance film or any art that we really are, you know, are left this great impression with, it's something that does, you know, embraces the medium fully and is really strong at those specific things that the medium calls for. So I think the fact that it's animated, the fact that she has this chair that she is dancing with and in adds to the specificity of her movement. And I love that about seeing films that have like different ages and different body types and different equipment involved because you do get to see more of a range in vocabulary. And it's, you know, isn't that part of the joy of actually watching things? I'm sure there are people that this film might, or this film or another film or another video might be their first exposure to actually seeing other people with other abilities dancing. They might not be people that typically go to the theater. And that's something that we all obviously really care about with film and enjoy about the frame form topics is the fact that it does transcend into popular culture. It's not just confined to the the people working in the industry. As I've said earlier, like these three strong yet very different films, I think, exhibit just overall great and innovative filmmaking. All of these actual films, too, these are not their first films. This is not the only film that they have made. As it shows, like they've they've been around the block and they know exactly what they're doing. And I think this is a great way of like, especially in a time of just being in the internet and being able to share things like this is how these films get so widely uh, noticed. And I think not just because of their physical integration, but just their artistry all around and how to be creative and working outside of the barriers that are seen in dance outside of that. You know, it reminds me of this Van Gogh exhibit, this immersive exhibit that's been super popular across the world. And actually my grandma went and she like loves it. So I'm so glad that, you know, even like a 90 year old woman can go see Van Gogh in this insane immersive way. But anyways, it made me think like this film in particular 
or color reality done on like such a big screen in an immersive way would be so cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I also imagine like 3D and then, you know, having the potential to have a wide array of audio description possibly yeah. and a lot of different different possible ways to experience the work rather than one prescribed for a specific audience member um, based, you know, based on their physicality and based on their needs. And, and yeah, I think that a big piece of this work is really helping to create community and really helping to, I don't want to say create community because these communities have been around for many, many years, but really helping to expand these communities and really connect lots of different artists and connect the potential of lots of different artists. And I know it's on us as curators to make sure that these artists are are seeing that these artists have the opportunities to create more work like it from their perspective, not someone projecting an idea of ability or disability on the artist, but really elevating the voices to project their own or to really present their own perspective. And also just a crucial way to think of how how do you show work? How does your audience experience work? Who is not able to experience work? Like how is your theater set up? Do you have someone providing an audio description on site or is that something that's not going to be offered? Um, if you maybe if you have neurodivergent audience members, maybe you can provide a screening situation that's going to be ideal for them to experience the film and maybe even provides a space for them to, if overstimulation is an issue, really provide a space for them to to work through that as well. There's so, I mean, just there's so many gaps that are still remaining and that are really precluding of so much great work. And I think it's really on us as curators on as artists to really help break down those barriers and really help increase accessibility in in every area. Well, Claire, we couldn't have put it better ourselves. And, you know, thank you again to Mark Brew for coming on the show today. And thank you, Alice Shepard, for all these amazing resources that we have linked in the show notes. And thank you to everyone that is listening and being part of the conversation today. It's super important that we take time to explore all the many different topics that arise when we are looking at the intersection of dance and film. So until next Wednesday, we'll talk to you later. Next week, I'm sitting down with Kara Hagen, curator, author, filmmaker, and all around good person. So tune in next week to listen to that. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com and engage with us on social at frameformpod. That's frameform, P-O-D. If you like what you're hearing, leave a review and rate the show. It really helps out. And if you know someone who also likes dance or film, join the conversation and bring your friends. Frameform is a production of Rixie. Hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Edited by the Frameform team. Mix and theme song by myself, Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.